I'd ask you to turn to chapter 4. But before I begin to read at verse 16, I want to read the prophetic introduction, which is background to this section. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the synagogue were filled with rage. As they heard these things and they rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. This is a surprising narrative, is it not? No, I'm not referring to its uniqueness. Only Luke records this reading from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue at Nazareth. Luke's selection and positioning of this story 
is embedded in the redemptive historical thrust of his two-volume work, Luke-Acts. There is something here in Jesus taking up the school of Isaiah, which is programmatic, programmatic for Luke and programmatic for his readers. No, this passage is not surprising from its uniqueness. It surprises from its antitheses, its polar opposites. Did you notice the basic opposition when I read the passage? Look at the antithesis between verse 22 and a verse later. See if you can pick it out. The antithesis between verse 22 and a later verse. Do you see it? After Jesus reads, the listeners in the synagogue speak well of him. Verse 22. 20. They were all filled with wrath. Yes. What verse? I can't read it. Okay. Anyone? Verse 28. Yes, very good. But within a few short moments after he is commended, listeners in the synagogue are filled with rage against him to the point of trying to kill him. Verses 28 and 29. This is surprising, indeed shocking, because it's a complete about-face. The same audience which commends him does a 180 and condemns him. But perhaps what surprises us does not surprise Luke. Perhaps the antithesis surrounding Jesus is programmatic. Perhaps the antithesis is embedded in the history of redemption. Antithesis has not been the theme of this gospel up to this point, at least not ostensibly. Luke's wonderful Christmas hymns inaugurate the opening two chapters. Can any of you name one of them? Randy? And who's who's singing that? Mary's Magnificat. Very good. That is the first one. Anyone name another one? What's the second one in order? John's, not John's mother. John's father. And what is he singing? Benedictus. Means what? Blessed be, yes, blessed be the Lord. The Magnificat means my soul magnifies the Lord. <clears throat> And the third one, none of you should miss that one. What are they singing, Marge? Gloria in excelsis, right? And what's the last one? Simeon's song. And the nunc dimittis, now let your servant depart. 
from Christmas hymns, Luke moves to spirit anointing, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus at the Jordan during his baptism in chapter 3. And now, after the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus comes home. Jesus comes home to read the Bible. We think of Luke's Christmas narrative with its nativity scene and angels hovering and shepherds wondering. These scenes of great joy to us, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Any antithesis, any radical opposites seem far away from the hills around Bethlehem, far away from the exultant mothers, Elizabeth and Mary, far away from the theophonic voice at the Jordan, thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased, verse 22 of chapter 3. But what seems far away is only apparent, only apparent. Aged Simeon prophesies, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, to be opposed, verse 34, chapter 2. Satan assaults Jesus after his baptism with a barrage of antitheses, a threefold staccato of opposition, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Jesus refuses each one, but the adversarial element has been foreshadowed at the outset of chapter 4. We know, we know that Christmas is followed by Good Friday. The manger gives place to the cross. Even the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan is a washing from sin and guilt and death. These ultimate antitheses, vicariously assumed, vicariously assumed by the Son of God himself, sin and guilt and death must be washed away from us cleansed and washed from him, the Son of God being washed in our place. The antithesis of the Christmas story, the antithesis of the baptism story, the antitheses of our story are intimated in the first three chapters of Luke's story of Jesus' story. But here in chapter 4, and especially in the passage that we read, we have a dramatic, even shockingly surprising antithesis. And you will notice how Luke masterfully embeds this antithetical theme in the structure of the narrative as if to indicate that narrative structure serves narrative theology, as if to indicate that narrative structure serves narrative biblical theology. I want to begin by pointing out how Luke has framed 
this pericope. In other words, there are narrative markers which set this section of the third gospel apart. Let me begin with verse 16. Jesus comes down to Nazareth. I'm sorry, Jesus comes up to Nazareth. Now notice verse 30. Jesus departs from Nazareth and verse 31. He comes down from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now the coming to Nazareth is actually going up up the hills of central Israel. Going down to Sapernium is going down to near sea level at the Sea of Galilee because that's where Capernaum is located. So the narrative directional vectors here are not only a scene shift device, but they are also a framing device. Jesus comes to Nazareth. He goes down from Nazareth. And Jesus leaves Nazareth, his hometown, at the end of the pericope, never to do the antithesis, never to do the opposite again. Jesus goes down to Capernaum, never to return to Nazareth again. A narrative unit, then, Verses 16 to 30, framed by the obverse, a narrative unit framed by the opposite directions. Luke brackets this story with its shocking opposition. His hometown wants to kill him. Luke brackets this story of surprising opposition with opposites. To Nazareth, from Nazareth as if to mirror in the narrative drama of the shift of setting and location, the internal tension of the antithesis, the shift in opinion about the center of the narrative, Jesus the Christ, Son of God. So in a unit of narrative antithesis, a narrative antithetical marker, verse 16 over against verse 30. But Luke provides even more structural clues to his thematic antitheses. As you will notice, if you look at verse 16 again, Jesus stands up to read. What's the antithesis of standing up? And where do you find that? Yes, in what verse? Verse 20. Opposites. But Luke is not done. Jesus is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Verse 17. What does Jesus do in verse 20? Say it louder. He hands the scroll back to the attendant. Opposites. Jesus opens the prophet Isaiah, verse 17. What does he do in verse 20? Close the 
he closes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Opposites. Luke carefully delineates narrative opposites in framing the quotation in the middle of that opposition, namely the Isaiah 61 text in verses 18 and 19. Opposites frame the central prophetic core. And he structures this narrative frame antithetically because opposition is the narrative motif of this narrative unit. I remind you once more of the striking opposition, the furious antithesis between the reaction to Christ in verse 22 and the reaction to Christ in verse 28. Luke is drawing out clues for us. In fact, Luke is drawing out biblical, theological, or redemptive historical clues for us by framing this narrative with opposites. Verse 16 with verse 30, by framing the Isaiah reading with opposites, verses 16 and 17 with verse 20. The opposition to Jesus, which surprises us in the synagogue at Nazareth, is framed in a narrative pattern of structural antitheses. The response to Jesus, even in the synagogue of his hometown where he worshipped every Sabbath day. But I invite you to look one step further. One step further for reinforcement of Luke's antithetical paradigm. I direct you to Capernaum in verse 31, where Jesus descended after departing from Nazareth. You will note that he enters a synagogue there. Notice verse 33. And in that synagogue is a man possessed by the antithesis of Jesus and his kingdom. The man is demon-possessed. After the opposition in Nazareth, demonic opposition in Capernaum. And what about before his arrival in Nazareth? before the opposition of the hometown crowd in his hometown synagogue. Luke 4, 1 to 13, satanic opposition. Before the opposition from the synagogue at Nazareth, opposition from the supreme opponent himself, the devil. The devil opposes Jesus with the most insidious of antitheses before Jesus faces opposition from the worshipers in the synagogue at Nazareth. You see what Luke has done here in this masterful construction of this narrative, masterfully inspired recording of this narrative. There's nothing non-historical here. It all happened. But Luke is the one that tells us about it, and it's the way he tells it. It's fascinating. He has surrounded this Nazareth pericope with opposition to Jesus of Nazareth. Opposition to Jesus from Satan himself and from Satan's demons. Opposition from within his own hometown and a synagogue audience. Glorious Christmas hymns of Luke 1 and 2 seem a distant memory 
when we come to Luke chapter 4, Simeon's prophecy is being fulfilled right before our eyes as we read the verses of of Luke chapter 4. This child will be for a sign to be opposed, and Satan opposes him. This child will be for a sign to be opposed, and the demons oppose him. This child will be a sign to be opposed, and his neighbors oppose him. The Christmas hymns are songs of doxos, doxology, but they must be balanced by the songs of pathos, sorrow. We must not lose sight of the rest of the story. Luke will not let us, and virtually from the outset of his public appearance, Jesus is faced with opposition. A theme of Luke's narratives in this gospel and in its sequel, the book of Acts. Now, so far, I have sidestepped the reason for the opposition in the synagogue crowd at Nazareth. Why the well-speaking, verse 22, reversed to evil seizing, verse 28. The antithesis in the crowd's reaction cannot be explained from the hometown boy syndrome. No, the hometown boy syndrome appears to be what grants Jesus the permission to read from the Isaiah scroll. Well, then why are they furious with him? The answer lies in the combination of antitheses here in chapter 4. Jesus opposes the devil in Luke 4. Jesus opposes the demons in Luke 4. And Jesus opposes his hometown crowd in Luke 4. Jesus comes home from being opposed by Satan. Jesus will leave for Capernaum to be opposed by Satan's minions. And sandwiched between at home, Jesus returns to the village where he was raised, to the synagogue where he customarily worshipped each Sabbath day, Jesus returns to oppose his neighbors. Now, you will notice how I phrased that last statement. Jesus returns to oppose his neighbors. I've been detailing the opposition to Jesus, but here I state Jesus' opposition to his neighbors. Isaiah 61. And Jesus opposes his hometown fellow citizens. Is this not the reciprocal of the antithesis? Satan opposes Jesus. Jesus opposes Satan. The demons oppose Jesus. Jesus opposes the demons. Now in verses 16 to 30... Jesus opposes the synagogue crowd in Nazareth. The synagogue crowd in Nazareth opposes him. Christ's 
opposition to Satan and his imps is easy enough to grasp. But his opposition to the synagogue crowd, his opposition to the synagogue crowd, what is going on here? The key to this incident is yet another antithesis. You must notice very carefully, because Luke highlights it, you must notice very carefully what enrages the synagogue crowd. The reading of Isaiah 61 itself? No. What enrages the crowd is the participation of the Gentiles in Isaiah 61. Jesus folds down the uncircumcised Gentiles into his reading from Isaiah 61, and the crowd goes ballistic. Jesus says God's grace includes a Syrophoenician widow and her son, and the crowd goes berserk. Jesus says God's grace includes a Syrian leper, and the crowd becomes murderous. Notice, notice that it is after Jesus specifies the gracious beneficiaries of the miraculous power of God through Elijah and Elisha, that the synagogue audience becomes enraged. Elijah bypasses the widows of Israel. Elisha bypasses the lepers of Israel. Foreigners, Gentiles, non-Jewish foreigners receive God's grace and mercy, and the synagogue at Nazareth flies into a rage. God's grace and mercy is for Israel. It's for us, says the synagogue crowd. It's not for Gentile sinners. It's not for those outside Jewish synagogues. God's grace is not for those opposed to us, those we oppose. If you declare God's grace is for them, Jesus, you are not one of us. Even if you are a hometown boy. The kingdom of God is within Jewish borders. It is reserved to Jewish synagogues. The kingdom of God is us. No one opposed to us. No one else but us. And because you include some persons other than us, Jesus, you oppose us. And because you oppose us, we are antithetical to you, you and your inclusive Jewish Gentile kingdom of God. There's the bottom line. The fundamental antithesis which Luke is highlighting and will expand in magnificent detail in the book of the Acts. The redemptive historical antithesis, the eschatological antithesis, or is that not what Jesus brings? With his Christmas hymns, with his theophonic baptism, with his wilderness temptation, does he not bring the redemptive historical antithesis? Unto you is born this day a Savior antithetical to a cursor. A Savior, not a cursor. Thou art my beloved Son, Spirit anointed. 
antithetical to spiritless, not my sons, not my daughters. There's an antithesis there. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Antithetical to the kingdom of the Antichrist, where the knees are bowed to Satan. In our day, they even say prayers in public municipalities. In the synagogue at Nazareth, the redemptive historical The eschatological antithesis is found in the reading from Isaiah 61. Notice verses 18 and 19. An eschatological spirit possessor declares the dawn of the eschatological gospel. Good news. With attendant eschatological liberation, freedom and concomitant eschatological sight opening the eyes of the blind in the eschatological year of Jubilee. For you see, Isaiah 61 is the prophecy of the eschatological year of Jubilee in the day when God will do everything that Jesus read he would do in that synagogue at Nazareth and said, This day, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. A declaration in his hometown of the eschatological turning point of the ages, proclaimed in the synagogue of his childhood, even as it is declared to the shepherds in Bethlehem and to the penitents at the Jordan and to Satan in the wilderness. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, with Luke 4, 18 and 19, signals the advent of the eschatological jubilee year of the Lord. Jesus says so in verse 21. This text has been fulfilled in your hearing. This prophetic eschatological text has been fulfilled. It has been accomplished. It has been realized. It has come to pass this moment when I read it. but not an ordinary Israeli jubilee year. This jubilee from Christ's advent and announcement includes those outside Israel. It includes those inside and outside Israel captive to the opposition enslaved by the forces antithetical to the good news of the gospel, blinded by the dark light of the prince of darkness, imprisoned and crushed by the tyrants of evil. The bringer of jubilee brings the opposite to all those who were once upon a time antithetical to him and to his kingdom and even to his jubilee. The opposite of the antithesis comes with him, with Jesus. This day it has been fulfilled. Good news, emancipation, sight, liberty, the year of God's grace. It's here with me now in your hearing. 
Once again, Jesus proclaims the eschatological jubilee. Proclamation, declaration of the fact is sufficient, or is it? Just saying it should be enough, or is it? In the season of incarnation, what good are prophetic promises as proclamation alone? In the season of incarnation, what good are angel hymns without embodiment? In the season of incarnation, what is theophonic announcement without filial enfleshment? In the season of incarnation, what good is opposition to Satan without historical actualization? What are good, what good are the words without the reality? What good are the words without the embodiment, the enfleshment? The words becoming flesh. What good are they? They are abstractions. They are impersonal theories. They are intellectual games. They are ideas without substance. This is the malaise of much modern preaching and preaching theory. Abstract, impersonal, Moralistic, applicational, not existential, not experiential, not affectional. The words of Luke 4, 18 and 19 are abstractions, intellectual idealisms, empty sophistries. They are not incarnated if they are not embodied, if they are not incarnated, if they do not become part of the warp and roof, the flesh and blood of redemptive history, if they do not become part of Christ Jesus' story, if they do not become part, then those united to Christ are united to an abstraction. May it never be. He is not an abstraction. He is not a mere intellectual whim. He is not merely a moralistic example. He is not merely an applicational model. He is flesh and blood glorified. Real, historical, flesh and blood glorified. If you want abstractions and intellectual moralisms, you can go to India and China and Japan and every pagan culture on the face of the earth and get plenty of it. But that's not what Christianity is. The abstracting and intellectualizing and the reductive applicationism of modern evangelical and even reformed preaching is an ego trip. It lacks any incarnational vector, any truly participatory, identificational affection. A-F-F-E-C-T-I-O-N. Jonathan Edwards' religious affections. The love of the heart of the soul of the believer being drawn into the heart that loves that soul. Do you ever sit down to muse upon the fact that the heart of the eternal Son of God could love your heart 
and soul. Do you ever sit down to just think about that? That he who crossed all eternity with his eternal heart of love would take you to his breast like he took John and let you lean there. Let you lean there upon his heart of love. And your heart says, oh, it's only an intellectual abstraction. Only it's a theory. It's only your idea. John wasn't leaning on an idea. He was leaning on flesh and blood incarnation of the Son of God. And by faith, you are invited to do the same. Now, I want you not just to hear what Jesus proclaims in Luke 4. I want you to feel how he incarnates what he proclaims. He puts flesh on this. He puts a body to it. I want you to feel as surely as you are leaning on him and clinging to him, I want you to feel how he incarnates the proclamation of Isaiah 61. Vis-a-vis Luke chapter 4. And if you feel that, if you feel it out of the depths of your soul, your needy heart and soul, your life is different. Apostle John's life was different. From that night on, he was never the same. Because Jesus embodies this jubilee proclamation, your life of bad news, your life of bondage, your life full of blind darkness, your life full of oppression, your life full of, Paul says it, enmity and hatred from the heart against the Lord God and his anointed. But because of Jesus' life in history, your historical life is different. Praise his grace and wonderful, loving heart for you. Feel it. Possess it. Treasure it. Love it. He did this. For you. You see what happens here. The antithesis seizes hold upon Jesus. The opposition presses in upon Jesus. Jesus is opposed and he does not resist. Jesus is the victim of the antithesis and he does not escape. And Jesus does not resist. He does not oppose the antithesis so that he may join you to himself 
and carry you along with him into that eschatological jubilee, which is being celebrated for eternity already in front of his throne in heaven where his glorified flesh and blood body is, is at rest at the right hand of the Father. This is reality. This is not mythical legends. This is not pie in the sky. This is the reality of the incarnation of God the Son. Even the opposition to it merely expresses its opposition to the opposition. Jesus takes that opposition and focuses it upon himself. For the opposition seizes Jesus. Jesus would become the embodiment of the antithesis of Isaiah's proclamation. And Jesus becomes that reversal for you and for me and for all who are afar off. He will enter into that antithesis. He will bear it. He will let it oppose him. Because that's the only way he can set you free. That's the only way he can rescue you from the opposition. That's the only way he can take you from the hand of the enemy, the antithesis of all good and righteousness and holiness. Jesus comes to Nazareth and proclaims good news, but the opposition proclaims bad news. And that bad news is our biography, our story. Jesus says, I will make your story my story. And he enters into the antithesis. Jesus allows the antithesis, the bad news, to seize him, to arrest him, to nail him, to kill him, to bury him. Jesus participates in the antithesis even proleptically in the synagogue at Nazareth because he knows there's no other way to deliver his loved ones, his elect loved ones, from the antithesis, from the bad news, from raging death and Satan and hell. No way except he submits to the opposition in their place. There is no good news except Jesus makes your bad news story, my story, our story, his story. And in reversal, so makes his good news story, your story, my story, our story. Jesus proclaims liberation and freedom in the synagogue at Nazareth but the opposition proclaims bondage and slavery. And that bondage and slavery is our biography, our story. Jesus says, I will make your story my story. And Jesus enters into the antithesis. Jesus allows the antithesis, the bondage and the slavery to seize him, to bind him, to shackle and chain and enslave him. Jesus participates in the antithesis even proleptically in the synagogue at Nazareth because he knows there's no way to liberate his loved ones, his elect loved ones, from the antithesis, from bondage, from the raging, oppressive, tyrannical, satanic, hellish slavery. There's no way, save he bends himself 
to the opposition in their place. There is no freedom from bondage, except Jesus makes your bad news story, my story, our story, his story, and so in reversal makes his good news story, your story, my story, our story. And finally, Jesus proclaims sight to the blind, but the opposition proclaims darkness, even darkness which might be felt. Do you have any sense of the haunting blackness of the darkness of this age? The utter gloom and blight of this age of hopelessness, except for what they can grab or grasp or seize or destroy? Do you have any idea of the depths of the abyss into which this age is plummeting because of the darkness? The dark blindness is our story, and increasingly the story of the generation of Western civilization in which we live. Jesus says, I will take your darkness and make it mine. And so his eyes are shut. Hmm. Jesus' eyes are shut with darkness. Into the realm of darkness he descends. No light, no light to those all-seeing eyes. Jesus allows the darkness, the blindness, the antithesis, to shut out the light. Because he knows there is no way for the light to shine unless the darkness first overcomes it. Then, on that glorious Easter morn, break forth, O beauteous light. No more darkness now. There is no light except Jesus makes your story, your dark story, my dark story, our dark story, his story, and so makes his story, his light of the world story, your story, my story, our story. Does this not affect you? Are your affections your deepest emotions not moved with love, with passionate love, with ecstatic love for this Savior who faces the opposition, endures the antithesis, vicariously assumes the evil and the bondage and the darkness and the wrath you and I deserve. Are you not moved with affection, genuine religious affection? This is Luke's story of invitation to us to include you and me, Jews and Gentiles, in the eschatological jubilee reversal of our story. And he does it with his narrative structure. He does it with his narrative theology. He does it with his unique biblical theology He does it in his eschatology, his story of Jesus at the synagogue of Nazareth is a story to fold you into Jesus, to draw you into Jesus, to unite you unto Jesus, to affect you with love for Jesus, love for the good news, 
love for his capturing captivity, love for his eye-opening mercy, love for his new beginning year, this beginning of the eternal year of God's grace and favor. Not an abstraction, not an intellectualization, a real intimate union with Christ and his story out of the story in the synagogue at Nazareth. This is your eschatological jubilee. Luke 4 is your eschatological jubilee. You are united to this story, to his story, to the story of your Savior. For the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has been anointed to preach to you who are poor the good news of the gospel. He has been sent to proclaim release to you who are captives and recovery of sight to you who are blind, to set free you who are downtrodden and to proclaim to you the favorable year, the year of grace from your Lord and God. That's the message of Luke's story of Jesus in the synagogue of Nazareth, an eschatological reversal of the antitheses of the history of redemption in the one who alone could do it by taking it to his flesh and blood in your place, my place, our place, the place of every believing Jew and Gentile from that day on until he comes again in glory. Let's pray. We bless you, O Lord, for this eschatological jubilee of liberty and grace, of freedom from captivity and bondage, of being brought out of the darkness into the everlasting light of the age to come through Jesus, your Son, who is indeed the light of the world in whom there is no darkness at all. O Lord, He took on the opposition of the Antichrist, Satan himself. He took on the opposition of the minions of that kingdom of darkness. He took on the opposition of the scribes and the Pharisees. He took on the opposition even of his own hometown. He took it on willingly, submissively, gladly, lovingly. He took it so that it could be turned against itself. And the obverse, the reverse, the very mirror opposite of it would emerge for us in him taking our place in the crosshairs of the antitheses. We bless you, O Father. We bless you, dear Son. And we bless you, blessed Spirit. We bless you, three in one, one in three. We bless you because you have so wonderfully, graciously, lovingly borne the antitheses which bind and oppress and discourage and challenge us even in these days. Help us, O Lord, to love Christ, your Son and lean upon his everlasting breast.
For we pray in Jesus' name. The name of the boy from Nazareth. The name of the man in the synagogue of Nazareth. The name of the one who brings that jubilee of Isaiah to our hearts. Amen. I'll take any questions or comments you might have, if any. Yes, David? Uh, it would seem to me that the Lord uh, statement instigated the very strong opposing response because um, Israel had a horrendously poor track record in how they treated the prophets of God. And he said to them, you don't honor me as a prophet, just like your ancestors didn't honor the prophets that were sent. And uh, I'm, I'm speculating, but um, it seemed to me that uh, they probably were all of mind that, uh, well, we wouldn't have treated the prophets that poorly back then. We wouldn't have sung Isaiah and Jude. And here they're getting confronted with the fact that they're doing no better with the Lord than their ancestors did with the prophets that were sent to them. Yeah, I like your last comment there, to be lied by their actions. <clears throat> I don't want to minimize the connection uh, that David observes in the reaction to the Old Testament prophets by the uh, Israel, the former age. But I think that there's something very significant in the fact that Jesus specifies the Gentile features of those two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, that is the, the Gentile mission. <clears throat> and the reason I think it's significant is that it's once again uh, Luke's own narrative device of incorporating into Jesus' appearance at Nazareth <clears throat> the challenge of the future of the church that will come at his resurrection, namely the gathering of the Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven. So <clears throat> those two verses in which Jesus specifies, that's verses 25 and 26, or I'm sorry, 26 and 27 particularly, specifies the Gentile beneficiaries of the work of the Old Testament prophets. I think that's what uh, Luke is, so to speak, foreshadowing as <clears throat> the explosion of the apostolic mission in the book of Acts, which will be book two of his uh, two-volume uh, 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 sequel. So I don't, I don't want to diminish that uh, comment or observation you made, David, but I, <clears throat> I think what inflames them is this notion of inclusion of the Gentiles in. That's my opinion anyway. All right, well, it's the last uh, session we have for this season, and uh, <clears throat> thank you for your attendance. And <clears throat> uh, looking ahead, as I've indicated, uh, I'll be working on the book of Obadiah over the summer so that we can, <clears throat> uh, Lord willing, in September, first Thursday in September, no, maybe not the first Thursday, but September 8th. No, it won't be the first Thursday. But on September 8th, <clears throat> thereabouts, uh, we'll begin a study of the book of uh, Obadiah. Uh, so through the summer, if you wish to meditate on uh, the smallest book in the Old Testament, uh, it doesn't take you long to read it, uh, <clears throat> read through Obadiah. And uh, in the fall semester, then we'll be working our way slowly 
uh, through that uh, prophetic work. In the meantime, I wish you a, a blessed summer and uh, <clears throat> hope to see you back next September. <clears throat>